Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sound Strategic. Recent tensions between Greece and Turkey in the Eastern Mediterranean have once again raised questions about the strength of the NATO alliance. But beyond this current crisis, the transatlantic relationship between the US and its European allies that has long been the linchpin of the alliance has shown signs of serious strain in recent years. President Trump's frequent complaints about European defense spending reflects a change in how Washington views the NATO alliance. And as domestic politics have changed and security challenges have multiplied, the U.S. is increasingly seeing China and not Europe as its priority. What this new strategic focus means for NATO and how it will impact the U.S. military posture globally is the topic of today's episode. And to help me address these issues, I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast E.J. Harold and Henry Boyd. E.J. is the new director of the IISS America's office in Washington, D.C., And prior to joining the IISS, he served six and a half years as Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Defense Investment at NATO. He graduated from West Point and had a full career in the U.S. Army as an artillery officer and foreign area officer for Europe, and has spent 21 years living in Brussels, Paris, and Germany. Henry is a IISS veteran and my fellow China watcher on all things defense at the Institute. He is the research fellow in the Defense and Military Analysis Program here at the IISS and contributes to the annual Military Balance publication each year, providing detailed analysis of military capabilities for various countries around the world with a particular expertise on the U.S., Russia, and China. It's great to have you both on the podcast, so thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thank you, May. It's great to be with you. Yeah, thank you very much, Matt. Great to be back. Like we've done with the place. I'd like to start with a few current challenges within the alliance that have made headlines in the past few months, and what these might tell us about changing U.S. ties to NATO and Europe under Obama and Trump. So first, of course, is the ongoing dispute between Greece and Turkey. The dispute between these two countries over maritime delineation isn't new, but what do the U.S. and NATO responses to the latest developments tell us about how each of these actors is dealing with a potential conflict between two allies? Okay, well, let me jump in on that. Uh, this discussion is not new. It uh, it predates NATO. It predates uh, a lot of the politics that we are currently living through today and highlights a uh, uh, an ongoing situation with Greece and Turkey uh, that is uh, problematic and yet uh, something that has been well-maintained or well-handled uh, throughout uh, their their challenging history. Uh, we just had a, a great webinar run by Emil Hakayam, who's another one of our IISS fellows, looking at this question about tensions in the Eastern Mediterranean. And the experts that he had on uh, discussed this from a variety of different points of view, economic, military, geopolitical, uh, historical. And it, it all boils down to a, uh, uh, a discussion of equity and uh, rights that are enshrined in or, or uh, mired in history, uh, bad feelings, uh, mistreatment in the past, and a desire to see justice and equity achieved. Uh, the relationship of NATO to this situation has been, as it always is, uh, very balanced and mitigated. On the military side, you have uh, the chairman of the military committee, Sir Stuart Peach, uh, bringing the uh, military officials together to try to establish uh, an, a sort of tactical understanding of movements and intentions so that it de-escalates the situation. And on the political level, 
the secretary general who uh, operates uh, as everything at NATO through consensus has to tread a very fine line between the politics of two member nations of the alliance who have distinct and defined uh, opinions that he cannot necessarily uh, reconcile. So he's calling on their good offices to work together to achieve a, uh, an understanding and an agreement on the tensions that exist. I think uh, those. I think that's a, a fairly apt summary of the situation. The thing that I, I found interesting watching this from outside, I, I would not classify myself as either a Greco Greece or a Turkey specialist or a Eastern Mediterranean specialist, for that matter. But I, I'm interested in both of your views. Maybe in previous years, this might have been seen as a higher up NATO's agenda of issues to be to be addressed. Um, it's interesting to me, but this this comes on the on the background of a series of other high-profile issues that NATO have had to face in recent years and whether or not, um, you know, dating back to, I guess, well, you know, even like the most recent sort of flashpoint being the July announcement by um, Secretary of Defense Mark Esper and um, UCOM Commander Todd Walters about pending troop withdrawals from Germany, bringing kind of the U.S.-Germany relationship back into, back into a sort of focus in a big way and whether or not that an alliance having to juggle... It's continuing commitments in Afghanistan. It's continuing um, training mission in Iraq, the COVID nineteen crisis, a key, a, a key sort of a challenging relationship between it, between its key member, the United States, and its European allies, is now also having to deal with what is a long standing Greece, Turk, Greek, Turkish issue, revived and sort of emphasized by um, uh, resource developments in the Eastern Mediterranean. But dealing with that at the same time poses a, a kind of multi-spectral challenge that the alliance is, is 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 relatively new to i think well henry i think that's a uh a, an apt point that you raise about uh, the u.s engagement in the alliance and in europe um, as we look at the the question of changing threat perceptions or uh, where the interests of the united states may lie um, it's it, it's interesting to me that we, the Allies have not paid attention significantly to the consistent message from Washington over the last decade. Uh, famously, uh, then Secretary of Defense Gates came to Brussels on his sort of valedictory tour uh, to, uh, to say farewell before giving up his position as Secretary of Defense, and he made a very... Um, uh, shocking or troubling uh, speech in Brussels in which he pointed out quite frankly and quite explicitly that the Allies needed to do more to, uh, to share the burden of the alliance uh, with the United States. Now, this was not a new message. This is a message that has been consistently delivered by the United States since the founding of the alliance, practically. Um, that the Allies needed to continue to step up. Through the Cold War, the United States bore an outsized share of the burden because it was in the United States' interest. With the evolution of perceptions of threats and challenges in the global environment, the United States, which has a finite resource in its defensive structures, is looking at how they can get more bang for the buck and how they can stand up to competition in the Pacific while mitigating challenges in Europe. 
And one of the ways that they believe that that can be best handled is if the European allies are the first line of resistance or the first responders backed up by U.S. security guarantees, uh, the nuclear umbrella, and the, the promise, as has existed throughout the Cold War, of returning in force should that be required to the European continent. This has been a uh, message that followed through the, uh, the George W. Bush administration into the Obama administration and has now been much more starkly pronounced in the uh, Trump administration, uh, perhaps less eloquently or elegantly uh, by a, uh, a president who likes to tweet his opinions and uh, his displeasure. Uh, but nonetheless, the diplomacy behind all of that has been fairly consistent across different administrations of different political persuasions that there needs to be a greater sharing of the burden uh, between America and its allies. So let me just jump in and, and return back to the question of the announcement of the withdrawal of troops from Germany. Should we then understand this to be a response by the Trump administration to pressure uh, your, or, or at least punish perhaps European uh, and NATO allies for not carrying their weight? Or is it actually, in fact, does it in fact have more to do with um, U.S. rebalancing of its commitments? Honestly, the, uh, the, the Twitter storm seems to have been a, uh, a poorly timed and perhaps um, unfortunate occurrence because the, the reality as, it, as expressed within the defense community here in Washington in particular is that the necessary rebalancing of forces and the increased requirement for agility and the concern over static forces or forces stationed in camps, posts, and stations around Europe uh, as being vulnerable to, uh, to sudden attack, hypersonic weapons, uh, the, the potential new way of fighting of a, uh, a resurgent Russia means that our forces need to be able to be rapidly deployed moved about at will and less tied to fixed locations or or static infrastructure uh, than they currently are. In addition, by moving to new locations closer to the peripheries of the alliance, whether it be to the east or to the south, uh, making them uh, more deployable or redeployable by land, sea, or air uh, makes good strategic sense. And the repatriation of some units back to the United States so that they can be rapidly projected in whichever direction is necessary, uh, again, is consistent with the strategic outlook expressed in the national defense strategy and the national security strategy. I, I think that's that's a, a, a fair point to make, really. It's one of those things that struck me in the reaction to, I mean, both Trump's tweet and Esper's announcement, Esper Walter's announcement, is how Europe focused a lot of the commentary was. It was as if this move was simply about the only thing that mattered to the US must be Europe. So all, all that comes down to is whether or not the US the US cares about Europe. The, the, the Pentagon is 
is watching a global picture and is uh, as if you go if you read through if you either listen to the speech itself or read read the transcript of his comments you get a fairly clear indication that that yes trump accelerated the announcements and the decision making over ucom but that the ucom posture review is part of a wider review of us global commitments there is an indo pacom review coming um, if you go back to when Jim Mattis was Secretary of Defense, you could see CENTCOM's posture under review and and assets being moved out of theater as the U.S. tried to rebalance its global commitments to allow it what um, to effectively undertake what I think the National Defense Strategy says dynamic force employment as opposed to the more kind of consistent presence operation that had characterized their their overseas commitments for in previous years. Uh, one of EJ's two, a, a point about connecting the Trump administration's line on burden sharing to that of previous administrations, I think is a very valid one. I think you, uh, a lot of this may sound quite familiar if you go back and look at the kind of things General Raymond Odierno said about UCOM rebalancing when he was um, head of the army and started with, and was, was responsible for the last time the US withdrew heavy commitments from Europe when the last two heavy armed brigades were stood down in Germany in 2013, 2014. And um, Raymond um, Leon Panetta as Secretary of Defense under Obama and the Asia pivot, that there there's a, a lot of policy documentation under the Obama era about stepping back from the U.S.'s traditional Europe first look, becoming more Asia focused and the necessary posture alignment that changes there. Um, yes, there's also there's local politics involved. Um, U.S. politicians are usually keener to see more stuff stationed at home. It brings with it jobs and investments in local communities in the U.S. The kind of the kind of um, citizens who appreciate stuff deployed abroad don't get to vote in U.S. elections. But I think there is a genuine, long-standing strategic logic at play here, and I think being driven by the Pentagon more by the White House. Yeah, and to the, uh, to sort of follow Henry's point, there um, two things have happened in uh, recent months or. Yeah, recent months uh, that reinforced that. Uh, first, Secretary Esper spoke through the IISS uh, in a speech that uh, would have been given had we held the Shangri-La Dialogue this year uh, to the Asia-Pacific region and expressed the plans of the United States uh, for the deployment of forces, the, uh, su- the political and military support to the region, the reinforcement of bilateral relations, as well as uh, multilateral groupings that uh, the United States participates in. In addition, uh, there was a uh, uh, an announcement recently that the Secretary of Defense has directed the education system within the United States military to focus 50% of its attention on China as a strategic competitor. Now, that's significant because there has not been, since the end of the Cold War, that sort of emphasis on any particular nation as a competitor. Certainly, we never forgot or never lost sight of Russia as a potential uh, adversary or strategic competitor. Uh, but quite frankly, their uh, their military capacity declined so much since the end of the Cold War until recent times uh, that there was less credibility that they were going to be the uh, flashpoint. Uh, the Chinese have increased their capacity both on land, sea, and air uh, to a, to an extent that they are now 
quite logically the primary strategic competitor of the United States and the one that the U.S. is focused on. So given the, the policy speech in July, given the, the subsequent comment by the Secretary of Defense to the education system uh, just recently, this is a clear indication that the United States views the risks to the Russian or to the uh, European environment of Russian aggression have not gone away, uh, but they are uh, they are certainly much reduced by comparison. Yeah, I, I just I, I was I just say I was really struck by the Esper speech. I I it it's been a relatively open secret um, dealing with the, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense and its associated advice, but the Esper was specifically saying principle to many of our efforts is to focus the department on china that's some that 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 explicit level of concentration i think is is worth bearing in mind i mean let's let's talk about the china challenge then as you said the us uh, no longer minces its words over who it views as the primary challenger to the united states's military power in the indo-pacific region and of course certain nato allies um also share this uh, concern. Um, the European Union, on its part, uh, and certain EU member states, uh, of course, view China as a new systemic rival to the US and um, Western liberal democracy. But I wonder, do NATO and US threat perceptions still align here? Uh, although the EU, of course, has said that China is a, a systemic rival um, and NATO has shared some concerns over the fact that China is coming to NATO. Um, there is, of course, the question of whether um, uh, interests are, are perfectly aligned or will have to be uh, bridged somehow. So that's a, uh, a, a good question. And the, all the evidence that you need is to look at the, uh, the work plan of the alliance today. They have initiated over the last year uh, directed studies and directed work throughout the committee structure that is focused on responding to the challenge of China as a strategic competitor. Now, is the alliance going to entertain war plans for the South Pacific and uh, fighting China? No, uh, but the alliance is facing an increasingly uh, intrusive China in the Mediterranean Basin, in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, throughout Africa, and the activities of the Chinese on a commercial and a military diplomatic level are affecting the issues that, uh, that have direct impact on the alliance, migration flows, uh, illicit traffic, um, the question of sovereignty and uh, foreign ownership. So the uh, the port of Piraeus and the fact that uh, the Chinese practically own the port uh, because they they came in with investment money that now has a uh, a significant impact on potentially closing that port to alliance operations uh, should the uh, uh, the decision be taken. All of these are concerns that are motivating the, the work of the committees to consider what NATO's options are, what responses are appropriate, and the uh, preparations or the uh, preventive actions that should be taken to prepare the alliance for confrontation 
with a an aggressive China, whatever form that takes, whether it be economic, political, uh, or other. I, I think it's it's certainly been fascinating to watch the rise up the agenda of China, both within NATO but also within the national um, agendas of NATO member countries in Europe. Um, there, I mean the the unkind the unkind commentator commentary has been kind of connect that to a kind of a, a desire to placate President Trump and the United States by being seen to do something. But I, I think there is more to it than that. I think there is a genuine realization that although for NATO, Russia, um, certainly post-Crimea, poses a serious challenge, um, NATO can't afford to be simply fixated upon that one threat. And that the Chinese, um, how I say, involvement in Europe in a variety of spheres, be it military, be it diplomatic, be it econ- economic, um, their intelligence activities are going to increase rather than decrease in, in um, the near future. And that these things will have a direct impact on nato i.e that the effect of the of of chinese military modernization and military um challenge in terms into the united states is not simply going to be an indirect withdrawal of u.s attention and resourcing from europe it's also going to pose european countries and nato as an an alliance with direct challenges again as ej said not necessarily in terms of a, a kind of a war scenario in the south pacific but in terms of other areas um such as technology um where there where um, Chinese actions raise questions about European policymaking and raise questions about the balance between economic investment and security concerns in certain European capitals. You know, several years ago, I was on a uh, personal trip to Malta for vacation, and it was the first port visit of People's Liberation Army Navy ships in the Mediterranean uh, that had ever taken place. They were making their way, uh, they had made their way from China all the way through uh, the Red Sea into the Mediterranean and I think went up uh, further up the uh, European coast before turning around and making their way back, simply demonstrating the capacity to move ships and to coordinate port visits, refurbishment, uh, replenishment, uh, and to do it successfully with, uh, you know, being able to keep the ships operational um, that's a big deal for naval forces, and not every navy is capable of of navigating around the globe. Um, the fact that they they have demonstrated this capacity and continue to demonstrate that capacity um, was a wake up call to the NATO alliance. Uh, they consider have always considered the Mediterranean to be uh, a NATO lake, if you will. And there's a, uh, a three seas uh, initiative at NATO to look at uh, actions in the Baltic, the Black Sea and the Mediterranean Sea and how they coordinate coverage responsibilities and delineate uh, um, military uh, objectives in those areas uh, is very important. The fact that you see a new actor in those waters Um, really focused attention, certainly among the NATO militaries, but also led to the the activity that's happening at political level throughout these committees. I just think it's interesting um, when looking back to some of the some of the um, justification when the the US discussed about um, moving troops around in Europe and rebalancing posture there, the the importance of um, presence in new members in so we still call them new member states, relatively speaking for NATO, new member states um, in Romania and Bulgaria. And 
if the Mediterranean is not open to you, entirely open to you, um, then obviously that, that suddenly poses poses a serious question mark about your policy in those countries. And it's something that I think, yeah, that the traditionally NATO have seen have rightly been able to see the Mediterranean as a relatively kind of clear area that can be used for strategic purpose. Um, the increasing presence of the Russians there is one challenge, but the Chinese there as well, I think really highlights to NATO that great power competition is more than just rhetoric. There are practical things that are now coming out of that. I suppose it's not just the Russians or the Chinese on their own as well, right? If I'm not mistaken, uh, Russia and China held joint uh, live fire drills in the Baltic uh, a number of years ago. So it's, I suppose it's also that combined challenge of uh, an increasingly closer, if not uh, uh, if not an alliance uh, type of relationship between Russia, at least one that serves the purpose of a useful purpose between the two at the moment um, that NATO is uh, cognizant of. I do wonder, though, how this might all change and how the relationship between the U.S. and NATO might change, uh, considering uh, the U.S.'s upcoming November 3rd presidential elections. Well, you know, I think uh, fears of U.S. withdrawal from the alliance are somewhat overblown. Uh, Yes, the president has uh, enormous power, but he is also subject to uh, the checks and balances of our uh, our constitution and the voice of Congress is uh, quite unified on this, both Republican and Democrat, that the value of the, the North Atlantic Alliance cannot be underestimated. And it can't if it didn't exist, we would have to invent it uh, is often heard in the halls of Congress. Uh, so I think that uh, while uh, the president makes some very. Um, heavy-handed complaints against the alliance uh, from a transactional point of view. I think that the political uh, interests of the United States remain uh, quite uh, focused on having a strong NATO alliance. Certainly the, uh, the burden-sharing issue uh, will, will remain a, a, an important issue, but uh, NATO is going to going to be a uh, a force to be reckoned with, um, no matter who wins after this uh, election. I think it's fair to point out the U.S. demand on NATO has been for greater burden sharing, not for a kind of abandonment entirely. That whatever Trump's reaction to, again, his the, the transactional approach, the the level of the, what he see what he sees under investment by the Europeans. For the U.S.'s global posture, it's important to get the Europeans to, con- to be able to contribute more. But that's to doing that. Re- doing that requires staying in- engaged in some capacity. Um, the, the, the certainly there isn't a, isn't a U.S. move on either side of the aisle to depart Europe entirely to write Europe Europe off as strategically unimportant. The the challenge is balancing Europe against commitments elsewhere. Um, and I think the the idea that. Um, Either side of the U.S. political com- complexion is go- is go- is going to contemplate that kind that kind of radical change. Um, I think is not on the cards at the moment. I'd agree with EJ. I think when you've got things like no NATO withdrawal acts being discussed and put around, then I think I think con- Congress's will is fairly clear on this point. Well, and don't forget the importance of demographics. Um, you know, I am a typical American in the sense that I'm a European by origin. Uh, a combination of uh, German, Irish, English, French, Scottish, and that's just me. 
you know, there are, uh, there are, you know, millions of people like me in the United States who represent the diaspora from Europe uh, that has settled and grown the United States over uh, two centuries. And they have a voice in Congress with, uh, with very powerful lobbies who advocate for the European uh, continent. Now, it's true that the mix of uh, nationalities changes over time and that we have a strong Asian population, a strong Latin American population, a strong African population. And for issues in any of those regions uh, that matter, they also can uh, call upon large uh, lobbies uh, to uh, who who have interest in those regions. Uh, so I don't want to overplay the European angle. But my point is that Europe will remain central to the United States from an economic point of view, uh, our largest trading partner, from a military strategic point of view, uh, control of the Atlantic, uh, the uh, the Mediterranean, and the, the protection of lines of communication. Uh, from a uh, diplomatic point of view, giving weight to the U.S. opinion in uh, various fora, whether it be the UN uh, or other uh, global bodies. And we're going to continue to see the, uh, the, the, the strong interest of the Europeans to have tight relations with the United States. And one of the ways that you maintain that is through the NATO alliance. Uh, but what strikes me is kind of the nature of how, of how that importance plays out in terms of resourcing balance and from both, from both sides of the aisle, from a say from a Trump second second term or a potential Biden administration is that's going to have to continue but without the kind of the central devotion of resources and time and attention that I think it's clear not just on the defense side but across government that the um, the US's foreign policy is is going to have to devote con- increasing amounts of attention to what happens in Asia and that Europe 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 will not be in a position unless something horrifically unexpected happens to command the same level of central attention it may have done in the past. Well, by the same token, I think that Europe focused on Europe is important. And realistically, Europe is not going to be uh, facing up to uh, the challenges that China is is creating in Southeast Asia and in uh, the Indo-Pacific region, where the U.S. arguably and has demonstrably said we have interests. Uh, we, we are an Atlantic power, but we're also a Pacific power. And so it's natural for the United States to focus on one of those two regions uh, where they find the greater need for attention. If you consider the relationship with Europe and the alliance structure of NATO in particular, it's an opportunity for the United States to say, we're still part of NATO but we count on you, the European nations, to carry the burden there while we focus our attention for your benefit in uh, the Indo-Pacific region. Now, I wish I didn't still have to ask about the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, but unfortunately, looking at the recent trends here in the UK uh, and elsewhere in the world, I do. And I was wondering whether both of you might end on a question about resourcing. How might the COVID-19 pandemic affect uh, and subsequent global economic shocks 
affect both the U.S.'s ability to rebalance its security commitments and how NATO might consider rising to the China challenge. Well, you know, th- this is a, uh, a significant question uh, today. And it, in fact, uh, if you had asked me this question two months from now, when we'd completed the series of three webinars that we have planned on COVID and its impact, uh, I'd probably have a better answer for you. But the answer that I can give you today is, look, we, we suspect, based on current information, that there will be a shrinkage of not just U.S. GDP, but all the NATO allies' GDPs as well. And that shrinkage is going to affect a lot of things, including defense budgets, we believe. So paradoxically and unfortunately, it may uh, also occur that because GDP shrinks, some allies achieve their the uh, the 2% goal of GDP for defense spending by actually spending less uh, than, uh, than, than has been requested. You'll recall that in 2014, the Allies committed to uh, the Defense Investment Pledge at the Wales Summit, uh, which was to spend 2% of GDP uh, on defense and 20% of whatever was spent on defense on uh, recapitalization, R&D or new equipment. Uh, and that's one of the, President Trump's major criticisms is that allies haven't achieved that. Well, the goal was to do it by 2024. Um, okay, that's that may be too slow, but that was what was agreed. And allies are making progress toward that. The Secretary General lauds the fact that already there has been uh, significant spending increases by a number of allies and that uh, if all the allies hit the 2% objective, that it would represent uh, something like $100 billion a year additional spent on defense to the benefit of the NATO alliance. Uh, That said, uh, COVID is definitely going to uh, have an impact on that. And the issue is, can we continue to see the allies achieve the goals and objectives they've set for themselves through uh, NATO summit declarations, uh, given that GDP is quite obviously going to shrink, and will they be able to maintain their defense commitments? The jury is out on that, and we'll only see that over time. Uh, I suspect that defense being one of the primary obligations of democratic governments that we will see an effort to maintain defense spending, to uh, to retain a certain level of capacity and capability. Uh, but the plans for modernization, new weapon systems, new capabilities will likely be extended and delayed because of these uh, budget contractions. Yeah, I think I would agree with most of that. Uh, I think uh, defense planning in general is, of, is often kind of a, a science that, that d- delivers in a much longer time frame than initial planners hoped. I think even before COVID-19 was a word anyone recognized or a phrase, a name, um, I think you could. there were open questions about the viability of resourcing plans for a lot of um, NATO, European, US, um, Canadian um, defense modernization programs. I think 
frankly, they're all they, that's also true for other countries like Russia and China themselves. People have raised questions about sustainability of the spending plans required to underpin these things, and the level to which domestic concerns and domestic issues required resourcing attention that these plans hadn't taken into account. I think it's fairly obvious, it's a, a bit of a no-brainer that COVID is going to deeply exacerbate that issue for most countries. And I think from an alliance perspective, one of the issues I think we haven't touched on yet is the potential for greater interoperability challenges. Um, So not just the overall level of spending, but what happens if the US maintains a higher level of modernization, pushes faster into new technologies and new capabilities in a way that leaves some of its European and other allies behind and what that means for the US's ability to then operate with them, for the other allies to play a a useful part in in the way US war planners conceive of operations. Um, So US armies. Has, I think has a 2035 goal for its ability to achieve multiple multi multi domain operations under the plank plan is now Aimpoint is is the uh, the wonderful compound name of that for the process. But assuming that assuming that 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 continues roughly on schedule, it's expect it's 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 quite a fairly ambitious plan for delivering through joint effect a kind of a, a sophisticated sort of reconnaissance fires campaign. Um, now, in the European context, the US is prepared to deliver that. The first MDTF task force brigade headquarters style is expected to be act- active from 2021, I think, under planning, maybe slightly later now. Um, but if the burden is, if the, the greater burden is expected from European allies to provide resourcing around that, to complement that, and to provide the additional capabilities to, to, to bring that at scale, Will the Europeans still be able to achieve that? It, it will it, even even the larger European players, the British, the French, the Germans, be able to bring a level of um, capability and sophistication in the same time frame to complement that, or are we risking a kind of divergence of capability gap where the U.S. desire for greater burden sharing um, is complicated by what kind of what kind of burden they want they want that they want the allies to share and what the, what kind of burden the allies are willing to fund. Well, you know, I I share the uh, concern, Henry. The uh, but what I would point to as an example historically of how that sort of a scenario did not play out, as the U.S. was talking about netric centric warfare, NATO adopted uh, network enabled capabilities as their buzzword. It led to the creation of Allied Command transformation. The 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 repurposing of the uh, Allied Command in Norfolk. And uh, I would suspect that uh, similarly, as the United States pursues new capabilities, that they'll be able to, uh, that the allies will find ways to, to keep pace, uh, albeit at a, uh, a less expensive uh, capability development. Well, I think that's an excellent point to end on and a really good platform for our next episode, I'm sure, in the future altogether. I want to thank you both for coming on the podcast today, and it's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be with you today, Maya. And to our listeners, we hope that you enjoyed today's episode as well. So don't forget to follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and to recommend it to your friends, of course. And for all of the latest WISS analysis on global defense and security issues, please visit our website and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. See you all next time.